Let me pray for us and we'll jump right into our lesson. Lord, thank you for this evening. Grateful that you brought us together that we might open your word and dive into it. And I pray that, as always, you would put your word inside us, in our minds, in our hearts. Pray that you would help us today to be changed by your word as we sit in it over time. Father, we thank you for all the blessings that we have in this nation, uh, many of which that we even sometimes take for granted. Father, we know that many of the things we have, people in the world do not have. We pray your blessings and your mercy and your kindness would be extended throughout the world. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you know the, the drill, and I think this number's on your handout, but if you have questions during our class, please text those in. We like to answer as many questions as we can, so text in your questions during class. We are uh, in a little three-week series. Our Wednesday programming is a little at the mercy of the schedule, but we had spring break, and we're going to have Easter, and in between are three weeks. And so what I thought would be a really good study that leads up to Easter. Easter week, we won't have Wednesday night programming in here, so we'll have three of these classes. Then on Easter week, though, on Thursday evening in here at 6 o'clock, we do the communion story. If you've never heard that, bring your friends. It's a a short service, about 45 minutes, but it's a story that will tie the Bible together in some ways that, that you may have never heard before. But that'll be what we'll, the next thing we'll be doing in here will be Maundy Thursday. And if you don't know what that is, I didn't grow up knowing what that was either, but I'll tell you where it comes from. But for the next three weeks, I thought what we would do is we would walk with Jesus and his disciples in his last teaching before the cross. So on Thursday evening, the Last Supper, if you remember that, and then he's crucified on Friday morning. Well, the, between the Last Supper and the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus gives his last teaching to his disciples. It's in John chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to focus on Jesus' last teaching to his disciples. But let me set the context just a little bit. I'll show you a picture here of, uh, this is from, the picture on the right is from the Mount of Olives. And that is where the Garden of Gethsemane is up on the Mount of Olives. You're looking across the Kidron Valley. Kidron Valley, very steep valley between the Mount of Olives and you see the gold dome, that's the Temple Mount. Well, that's a mosque, that's the Dome of the Rock, mosque today, but that's where, very likely, the temple was in Jesus' time. So Jesus is likely somewhere in Jerusalem, eating the Last Supper, the Passover meal on that Thursday evening, and then, as they leave, he makes his way down the Kidron Valley, up the, guard, uh, the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's where this teaching occurs in that time period. I put that picture on the bottom left because I just happened to see it when I was flipping through our pictures from the trip. Those are olive trees. They are hundreds of years old. Now, not all of them up on the Mount of Olives look like that, but it's amazing how old these olive trees can get and how dense these olive groves are. And Jesus spent a lot of time there in the Garden of Gethsemane and the area around the Mount of Olives. But on this Thursday night, they're going to leave somewhere in Jerusalem. There are different places that people think maybe this happened, but he's going to walk down and up the Kidron Valley. And that's where he gives his last teaching to his disciples 
before he's arrested that night in the garden and then crucified on Friday morning. So we're going to break it into three pieces, and we're going to talk about, uh, in this one, we're going to talk about chapter 14. So let me give you the context of chapter 14, because you need to know what's prompting this whole discourse. So Jesus literally is almost the only one talking through all these chapters. He's just giving a long, not that long actually, but he's giving a sermon as they're walking and as they're moving. Well, they've just finished the meal in chapter 13. And if you remember, after, uh, there is this incident where he washes the disciples' feet. And at the very end of chapter 13, though, after Judas is gone, they've eaten the meal, Jesus says to them that I'm about to go away. At the end of chapter 13, Peter, you know, the rambunctious disciple, he says, I don't know why we can't go with you. He says, I will lay down my life for you. It's the very end of chapter 13. And Jesus answered him and said, really? You'll lay down your life for me? Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny that you even know me three times. Well, this really shook them up. He'd been telling them, it's my, my hour has come. It's time you will not see me anymore for a while. And Peter says, well, I'm going to be with you. I'd die for you. And Jesus says, you'll deny you even know me before morning. Well, they're shaken, they're afraid, they're anxious. And so the disciples and Jesus begin to talk in chapter 14. And the first thing he does is he tries to give them some comfort. Now, that's interesting because if you think about it, Jesus is the one that knows that in, in just a few short hours, he's going to go to the cross. Jesus is the one that needs comfort. But he begins to talk to his disciples, and you have to remember, they're very fearful and anxious about what's going to happen. They don't know what's going to happen. They know it's not going to be good, and they're just really worried about it. And that sets the stage for what Jesus is going to talk about. So in chapter 14, he begins, and I've broken this up so you can kind of understand the text, is there are really two big questions he's going to talk about. The first one is fear and anxiety and faith. And so let's jump into the text in chapter 14. And it begins in the first four verses. He said this, do not let your hearts be troubled. So you can understand why he starts this way, because they're very concerned. If even Peter, their leader, if his faith is going to fail, they're just shaken to the core. He said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you that. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place, I will come back and take you to be with me, so you may also be where I am. Let's talk about that, do not let your hearts be troubled. Here's, an, here's a great way to, to think about this. A pretty loose translation is, don't be intimidated by this situation. Don't be intimidated by this situation. This word, by the way, I'll show you which one I'm talking about here. This word for troubled uh, shows up actually in several places in the scripture, that Greek word, but I want to tell you one place that will just give you a, a really good idea. Do you remember the story? If you don't, I'll just tell you. There's a story of a man who is wanting to be healed, and he's sitting by one of the pools. And there's a legend that every now and then the pool gets stirred up and they said, oh, it's probably an angel of God stirring the water. And the first person to get in would be healed. Jesus came up and said, you know, what are you doing? And he said, well, when the water gets stirred up, 
I you know, don't have anybody to put me in the water, so I've been here a long time trying to be healed. And Jesus said, do you want to be well? And he said, yes. And Jesus said, then get up and walk. Well, in that incident, that stirred up is this word. And so what he's saying is, and this, this is something I can really resonate with, he said, you, you're just stirred up inside. When we look at events that we're anxious about, we don't know what's going to happen, we're fearful that it's not going to be good, we just, have you ever had that feeling and you just pace or you just fidget or you just can't find any stillness? That's this word he said, don't be so stirred up about this. Don't let your hearts be stirred up. The Epicurean philosophers at the time, by the way, used this word also. They had a philosophy that the best way to live life, and matter of fact, this is really a very modern philosophy as well. We just don't call them Epicureans anymore. But the Epicurean philosophy was never to get too high and never to get too low, kind of moderation. And so they used this word, the negative of this word is unperturbed or untroubled. In other words, their idea is the good life could be achieved by always being calm. Whatever happened, if it was good, don't get too excited. If it's bad, don't get too upset. Be untroubled, unperturbed. In modern times, you see this as well. People try to find a way to face the difficulties of life, and you tend to see a lot of platitudes, uh, like it's okay, it's, it's all going to work out. Uh, everything comes around in the end. Uh, don't worry, be happy. You, you tend to hear these platitudes in the culture, and you have to ask yourself, why do you think it's going to work out? I mean, there's no particular reason to think why it's going to work out. And so, as with the Epicureans, they just felt like, well, I think if you think about it that way, your life will probably go better. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, don't let your hearts be troubled because uh, it'll probably work out. He's got something more specific in mind. Look what he goes on and he says, look, you trust in God, trust also in me. Or, this is the word for have faith. You have faith in God, have faith in me. Well, there are people in the world who think that faith itself has the power to deal with fear and anxiety. In other words, the idea of just having faith. For example, uh, there's studies on prayer, and the idea is getting people to pray when they're sick, does that make people get well more often than people that don't pray? Well, needless to say, the results are not terribly conclusive, but it's kind of entered our common knowledge that prayer in and of itself does good things for you. That's not what the Bible teaches either. There's no power in prayer itself. But Jesus says, or in faith itself, you know, I can trust all I want to, you know, in my NCAA bracket, but it was blown up pretty fast. There's obviously no power in faith alone because I knew I had the perfect bracket this year. Lasted, oh gosh, halfway through the first round. You know, and that's good for me. But my point is the faith itself and the prayer itself doesn't really have power. But this is how Jesus starts. He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. You trust in God, trust also in me. The key for Christianity is this. So Thomas says to him, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth 
and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you knew me, you know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. So what's Jesus saying here? Two ideas here, one of which I want to go off on a tangent here in a minute, but staying with the idea of don't let your hearts be troubled. In other words, here's how to deal with your fear and anxiety. You trust in God, trust in me. Why should we trust in you? He says, because the object of your faith is what has power to dispel your fear and your anxiety. He, he doesn't say, I want you to trust that it'll all work out. I want you to trust in God because he's just going to make you wealthy and healthy and happy and, you know, your teeth white and your collar starched. And, you know, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, oh, it's this faith that's going to do it. He says, trust in me. Why? Because I am the way, I am the truth, I am the light. It's the object of faith that has the power in the Bible. And that's what Jesus is saying. He says, don't just trust in general, trust in me. Because I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. The Christian idea of dealing with fear and anxiety is to focus on the object of the faith. Why? Because unlike most religions and certainly most ideologies or philosophies, the Christians believe that God is active. In other words, God's not impersonal. He's not far away. It's not a deism. It's an involved God who actually cares about you and is involved in your life. In fact, actually sees your life play out and Romans 8.28 says, in every circumstance is working all things together for good. Not working all things together for comfort, not working all things together so Terry wins the bracket, but working all things together to a purpose, to good. That's the key to fear and anxiety. He said, you need to trust in me because I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And God is intimately involved in our lives. He knows who you are, he knows where you are, he knows your circumstances. So it's not the faith itself, it's not the hope it's going to work out, it's the object of that faith. So that's Jesus' answer, basically, to them when he sees them being fearful and anxious, and he says, how do you deal with that? And he tells them, don't be troubled, trust in me, because I am the way, the truth, and life. Not, I can show you the way, I am the way. So this idea of faith in the object. But let me take a time out for a second because I want to talk to you about, as long as we're here, we need to talk to you because, about this statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Probably the most offensive thing that Jesus said to our culture. Uh, there are two things our culture struggles with. I mean, a lot of things, but the two biggest questions I get, two biggest questions you'll see our culture make is, number one, how can a good God let bad things happen? But the second thing is, how can this be so exclusive that Jesus is the only way to God? The exclusivity of Jesus' claim is, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is, uh, causes a great deal of difficulty for our culture, this idea of exclusivity. So I want to talk about that for just a minute, and I want to give it to you from this point of view. Instead of trying to rebut that idea, because even in Christian circles, you'll see two ideas that are kind of gaining traction. One of which is this. If God is a God of love, then in the end, all dogs go to heaven. You know, basically, surely in the end, 
everybody's going to end up in heaven. So Jesus, no Jesus, we're all basically going to go to heaven. Second is that getting rid of the exclusivity. So well, first one is get rid of the Jesus part. It's not just about Jesus. It's really more about God's love for us. Second one is getting rid of the exclusivity. That Jesus is, oh, Jesus is the best way. Or Jesus is a good way. Or Jesus is one of many ways. But the Bible doesn't really give us leeway on either one of those. This is a very definitive statement. You can read this in Greek and you know what it says? I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That it says what it says and Jesus is being exclusive. So what I wanted to tell you, instead of getting into the argument, is simply tell you why this has to be true. Why Jesus has to say this. Let's just step back and ask ourselves the question, can Jesus say anything other than that? It's not consistent with anything else in the Bible to say anything other than that. And here's the reason. Bible presumes, and by the way, so do most secular people, is that we need some kind of reconciliation with God. We have all gone astray one way or another. Some would say sin. Some would say we've made mistakes. But nobody, not your secular neighbor, not Christians, not liberal Christians, are going to say we're all just fine with God. Everybody understands the essential brokenness of humanity in one way or another. Man's inhumanity to man, uh, exploitation in the world. No one really rational person is going to stand up and say, people are pretty much basically good and the world's a nice place. That's not a rational point of view. So everyone understands that there's some kind of reconciliation that needs to happen. Well, that's certainly biblical. The Bible understands that we are indeed alienated from God. Bible talks about that being because of sin, which is rebellion against God, that we are essentially in rebellion against God. But even if you were to believe that, well, we've made some mistakes, so we probably need to apologize, kiss, and make up. You know, we've got something we need to do with God. Here's the problem. The question then comes, what is the basis for that reconciliation? Would you think about this for a minute? Assuming that we have an issue with God, or more, more accurately, God has an issue with us. What would be the basis for us to be reconciled to God? How, how are we going to do that? Are we going to do it by behaving better? We're just going to clean up our act and be good enough to make our way to God? You might want to try that. It's not a biblical idea at all. Jesus can't say that because it isn't even slightly a biblical idea. The whole law of Moses was there to demonstrate that we can never really measure up to God's standards on our own. We need help being reconciled to God. Others might say, well, maybe if God just loves everybody enough, he just sort of, oh, never mind, just come on in, everybody's in, I'm just going to wipe the slate clean. Massive problem with that because there's no justice. Now you have an insurmountable problem with evil in the world. In other words, how does Saddam Hussein, Hitler, name all of the evil people, and there are billions and billions of them you know, in history, how in the world can a God be just and wipe the slate clean? There must be some, for the problem of evil to be solved, there has to be some kind of justice. God has to punish evil in some way or another, or that's not a God that anybody is willing to serve. So the question of what is the basis for our reconciliation is a real problem. 
not for Jesus. And this is how you get to this statement. Jesus says our fundamental problem is we are sinful. There is evil in the world. And God has a justifiable anger at that. He is outraged at this injustice in the world. We need to be reconciled. The method of that reconciliation is not in our power. We cannot act good enough, apologize enough to be right with God. That's what the Bible teaches. So what else can Jesus say? That you can find another way to do this? There's a price that has to be paid. Jesus is going to, make, to pay that price in a few short hours after he makes this statement. Jesus, the Bible, can't say anything other than this. There's no way that any other way to be reconciled to God other than through Jesus satisfies the demands of human justice, forget God's justice, or satisfies the ability to please God. Does that make sense? In other words, what I'm, all I'm really trying to say is as you think this through, as you hear things of other ways to be right with God, Jesus, to be consistent with the Bible, None of those are possibilities. Trying to say that you can be right with God without Jesus denies all of the Bible. In other words, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't say here, well, wait a minute. I like Jesus. I like everything he's about except this exclusivity thing. He has to be the only way to the Father or all the rest of the Bible falls. If you don't like exclusivity, you're going to have to deny the issue of sin one way or another because you can't deal with it without Jesus. There's no way to deal with this problem of sin. Or you're going to have to deal with the idea of justice without this statement. In other words, without this statement, you can't actually believe in the rest of the Bible. I mean, I guess you can do whatever you want and say, I don't believe that, but I believe the rest of the Bible. It's just not a rational position whatsoever. Sin demands a way to be reconciled. Justice demands a penalty for evil. Jesus is basically saying, I am the way to settle that. I am the reconciler in this situation. So it isn't that Jesus is being exclusive and being egotistical. He's simply stating the facts. Everything in the Bible leads up to that statement. You cannot throw that out without throwing the rest of the Bible out as well. Sin and justice require reconciliation. There is no way to be reconciled except Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. He's not bragging. He's not saying, I'm in charge here. He's simply saying, I am your only hope. That's the exclusivity of it. Now, it's exclusive in the sense that you can't get reconciled any other way, but it's very inclusive in the sense that Anyone, for God, John 3, 16, John so loved, or God so loved the world that whoever trusts in him will not be condemned. It's inclusive in the sense that Jesus is dying on the cross for us. It is exclusive in the sense that you can't get there on your own. Does that make sense? That is probably one of the most controversial statements in our culture because we don't like the exclusivity but when you throw that out, you have to throw the rest of the Bible out. And if you don't want to believe in the Bible, fair enough. You know, then have at it. Good luck. Try to solve the problem of justice in some other way. But my point is, as Christians, this is intimately related to the idea of reconciliation. You just can't have it any other way. So exclusivity is essential.
to what Jesus is talking about. So in this first section of fear and trust, it's not that complicated, but it's worth thinking through. Jesus' answer to their anxiety is trust in a specific thing. Trust in me because I am the reconciler, meaning I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, I have the ability to reconcile you to God. I have the willingness to reconcile you to God. And that is going to be accomplished. I can fulfill the promise. That's why the resurrection, by the way, is what the early Christians preached more than the cross. We tend to focus on the cross. They actually, if you read through the book of Acts and the sermons in the New Testament, way more talk about the resurrection. Why? Because that's delivering on the promise of being the way, the truth, and the life. If Jesus dies on a cross, I don't know if you thought about this, he dies on a cross, he gets buried, it's like, you're dead, but you died for me. That is not sufficient. It is not sufficient for him to sacrifice himself and say, I'll take all their sins and I died and that's it. Great, then we just all die and that's it. The resurrection is the delivery of I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, I not only can take your sins, but I can give you eternal life. He has to overcome death as well as sin. And so what Jesus is about to do is accomplishing that statement in the cross and the resurrection. Okay? Let's move on to the second topic. I just want to spend a little bit more time on it. Uh, this is, by the way, uh, one of the various coexist kind of ideas. And this is a really pretty good little spectrum of the way people want to have an ideology to live. I mean, you have Judaism, misspelled, but it's there. Uh, Christianity, Wiccan, paganism. Did you know paganism's making a comeback? Paganism is basically worshiping just all kinds of gods. You've got the Egyptian Isis cult going now. You've got all kinds of Celtic gods being worshipped. Kind of designer gods. You kind of pick who you want to worship. But those kind of is a spectrum of various ways to deal with it. The only way to deal with the sin problem and the justice problem, every one of those has insurmountable problems. And I'm talking about just from an objective point of view of dealing with the problem of evil and dealing with the problem of reconciliation with God. Jesus had to say what he said because it is the only way to be reconciled. Well, the second thing he moves on to, so he talks about fear and anxiety. He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am worthy of your trust. I, the object of your faith is powerful enough to accomplish it. But then he goes on, and this sounds a little unrelated, but it's interesting that he moves into this second topic. He's going to talk about love and obedience. So it's fear and faith. Then he's going to talk. It sounds like he's changing the subject, but watch how he brings it all together. He's going to talk about love and obedience. He says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. You'll do what I tell you. I'll ask the Father. He'll give you a counselor to be with you. We'll talk more about the counselor of the Holy Spirit in another lesson. He said, uh, I will not leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. Before long, the world will not see me, but you will. Because I live, you also will live. That's the resurrection. That's the key. On that day, you will realize that I'm in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, I will love him, and I will display or show myself to him. So the idea of love and obedience is always connected in the Bible, certainly in the New Testament. In fact, in these two chapters, I just kind of pulled out some verses here. 
In John 14, he says this four times. In John 15, he says it twice more. Six times in this talk, he links the idea of love and obedience. It's really popular today to basically distill the gospel into love God, love others. I'm not against, I'm actually am against that, but I'm not against it because it's untrue. I'm against it because it's extremely misleading because you and I don't get to decide what love God means. Jesus says, if you love me, you obey. Now that I'll buy. That's a good summary if we understand love the way he did. He said, if you love me, you obey what I command. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he's the one who loves me. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he'll obey my teaching. My father will love him, will come into him. He who does not love me does not obey my teaching. And again, twice more in John 15. So this idea of the repetition of the idea that love and obedience are together. Fear and faith, love and obedience. Jesus also sets the example. He doesn't just repeat it. But for example, at the end of this chapter, he's going to say this. I will not speak with you much longer for the prince of this world is coming. I want to talk about that too in another lesson. He has no hold on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father and I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. So he not only links love and obedience for us, he demonstrates that by being obedient. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, uh, well, I'll just quote it for you, it's really short. But in Philippians 2, 8, Paul's talking about what Jesus accomplished. He said he didn't consider remaining God to be something to be held on to. Instead, he took the form of a man. In other words, God enters the world to come reconcile us to him. And it said he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death. In fact, even death on a cross. That's Philippians 2.8. In other words, he said Jesus became obedient even to the point of death. In fact, even death on a cross. This is what he's saying. He said, you can tell that I love the Father because I do what he's commanded. And he was obedient even to the point of death. So this idea of love and obedience go together. That's true in a lot of theological uh, traditions as well. Crossings is in, in the Wesleyan tradition. If you're not, it's fine with me. Uh, we're not dogmatic about it, but this church is in the Wesleyan tradition. So I want to share with you John Wesley's idea of this. In reading the Bible clearly picks up on this idea. He, in fact, wanted to define sin itself as a voluntary transgression of the known law of God. In other words, we know God's commands and we voluntarily do not do them. He said, that's sin. That's what breaks the love relationship between us and God. Is sin is basically not obeying God. In fact, John's going to write later in the uh, book of 1 John, it's one of the little letters near the end of your Bible. This is later in his life. In 1 John 2, 4, he says this. Anyone who says, I know Jesus and does not keep his commands is a liar. Anyone who says, I know Jesus and does not keep his commands is a liar. Well, they're not saying anything new. They're just picking up on this idea that when Jesus talks about love, loving God is about obeying God, that those two ideas are inseparably uh, linked together, is love and obedience go together. The, uh, that's a hard thing sometimes in our culture because love is a very positive concept. 
Obedience is a negative concept for us. Obedience is, is not a good concept. If you think about the New Testament, though, the Apostle Paul takes this to the extreme, well, not really the extreme for him, but it is for us. A lot of our English translations clean this up a little bit. But literally what he says in almost every letter, almost every letter in the New Testament, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. Sometimes our translations change it to servant, which is not a good translation for us because you think of servant as, oh, I went to the restaurant and my server brought me some iced tea. That's not the idea of this. He's like, no, I'm a slave. I am completely at his disposal. My will does not matter. It's what he wants done. That's a really negative idea to us. But in the Bible, that's actually a very positive idea is to be wholly devoted to Jesus Christ is to love Jesus Christ. That's how God views obedience. It's not a negative thing. It's a sign of love. Think about the Proverbs. You read through the Proverbs, it's going to talk about uh, if you hate your son, don't discipline him. I mean, the bottom line is he says, if you don't discipline your kid, well, you must hate them. Love them enough to help them learn to obey. Love and obedience are always tied together in the, in the New Testament, really in all of the Bible. So Jesus is going to put those two things together. Now let's go to the third step. You've got fear and faith. Then he moves to love and obedience. And then he's going to tie it together in this passage in John 14, 27. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I'm not giving to you as the world gives. Do, and now he repeats verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. Why? Because they're scared to death and they're anxious and they're fearful. By verse 27, he says, so my peace I'm going to give you instead. You don't need to be troubled anymore. I'm going to give you peace. How do we get from fear and anxiety and Peter's going to deny me three times to peace down here at the end? He's brought this thing full circle. He says, don't let, so don't let your hearts be troubled. What happened in the interim? What happened was, as he said, fear is basically addressed by trust and the object of your trust, me. I am trustworthy. In other words, your faith is going to remove your fear because the object is able to accomplish what I've said that I will accomplish. I am the way, the truth, and the life. By obeying what Jesus has commanded, we enter into this loving relationship with him. He said, this is going to be the sign of our loving relationship. Think, think again about the Great Commission. I just want you to see, I'm pulling these snippets out because I want you to see this is a theme. This is all over your New Testament. Great Commission. Last thing Jesus says to them, Matthew 28, after the resurrection, he says, so go in, you probably know this, it is go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why does he put teaching them to obey? You've got two choices here, one wrong, one right. First, we think we need to obey because that's how you get God's approval. Er, wrong answer. Survey says zero. That is not right because we already know we are incapable of pleasing God by our behavior. Thank the Lord. 
I mean, that's a roller coaster way to live. Oh, I've been good. Maybe God's happy with me. Oh, I haven't been so good. Maybe he's not happy with me. I mean, just short circuit that. How well you behave is not the issue. It's not an earning thing. It's not a salvation by work. So what's the other alternative? The alternative is obedience to God is the essence of that loving relationship with God. Jesus said, if you love me, do what I ask you to do. That is the expression of it. It's sort of like being married. This may hit a little close to home. So you're married. You say, yes, I love you, dear, but I won't actually do anything in this relationship. No, I won't take the trash out. No, I won't do this. No, I won't do that. In other words, I am completely disinterested in you, and yet I love you. Well, none of us would believe that, would we? That's just not true. It's not even true in a human sense. God's saying love and obedience go together. Loving God means obeying God. So fear to trust, trust in the object of your faith. We have a relationship with Jesus, and what does that relationship look like? obedience and love. And at the end of that process, you get peace. That's how you cannot let your hearts be troubled. So it's not so simple as, uh, well, slap this Bible verse on my coffee cup and all my anxiety's gone. It, it isn't that simple, is it? It's putting our trust in the object of our faith, having that loving relationship which manifests itself in obedience. So what does obedience to Jesus look like? Well, sometimes we think obedience to Jesus is the do's and the don'ts, right? I'm supposed to do this, I'm not supposed to do that. That's actually not the best way to read the New Testament. There are obviously things the New Testament says, this is not consistent with who God is. Don't do this stuff. This is consistent with who God is, and do that stuff. But it tends to have more the idea, God says, if you want to obey me, then here's what I want you to do. I want you to love others like I love you. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that means, oh, anything goes. No. Only the things go that God tells us. Although we don't get to define what loving other people looks like. God does. He said, I want you to forgive the unforgivable. I want you to have mercy on people that don't deserve it. I want you to be compassion to people who are really kind of hard to love. I want you to pray for your enemies. I want you to keep yourself pure. I want you to set yourself apart. I want you to help people just because they need it, not because they deserve it. In other words, God defines what that looks like. That's being obedient to God. That's a much better way to look at the New Testament, is living that piece out. So, question. Let me pause there before we go to the so what. So that's kind of the theoretical part. I want you to see that little chain. He goes from don't let your hearts be troubled, and at the end... My peace I give you, so you don't need to be troubled. And this is the chain that's in, in the middle. Question? Mm -hmm. So how do um, you compare our sin to Peter's denial of Christ? Our sin to Peter's denial of Christ. Yeah, great question. Uh, that's a bad thing. Let's just, let's just say that Peter's denial of Christ is not a particularly loving or obedient thing to do. He failed. And you see this beautiful, uh, we got to talk about this. That's a brilliant question. Okay, so let me tell you how this is going to play itself out. And you're going to see, ditto, you're going to see this all over. This is a theme in the Bible. So what happens? Peter, sure enough, he fails. He actually ends up, oh my gosh, I just denied I even knew Jesus because I was such a coward. And then he goes away and he weeps bitterly. He repents. He goes, I failed. I've sinned. So then, fast forward. Jesus, he go, they go fishing. 
Jesus is in the tomb and appears to be raised from the dead, but they don't know what in the world is going on. Peter says, I don't know what you guys are doing, but I'm going to go fishing. I cannot figure this out. I'm so down. I'm such a failure. So he goes fishing. Jesus comes. This is later in the Gospel of John. So he, Jesus comes to him, and he's on the shore, and he calls out to him, and John says, oh, my goodness, that's Jesus. He's alive. Peter goes, oh, you're kidding me. Throws off his shirt, dives in, swims to shore. They all get there. They eat together, have a little meal. And Jesus then goes through this little thing called the reinstatement of Peter, and he asks him, three questions. So Jesus denies he knows him three times. Jesus asks him three questions. Do you remember the question he asked him? Did he say, Peter, are you sorry? No, that is not what he asked him. He says, Peter, don't you regret that? No. Peter, I told you so. No. Do you love me? Isn't that interesting? That's what he asks him. Do you love, actually, he kind of rubs his nose in a little bit, because Peter in chapter 13 says, these guys might desert you, but I'll lay my life down. I mean, he just throws the rest of the guys under the bus, right? So he says first, do you love me more than the rest of these guys? And Peter's like, apparently not. You know, wasn't very obedient. Asked him again, do you love me? And he said, you know that I love you. And then a third time, do you love me? And every time when Peter says, yes, I do, he says, then go feed my sheep. In other words, go be about my business. Go be obedient. And what happens after that? Peter goes on, read the book of Acts, he becomes bold for God. He ends up dying, being crucified upside down for Jesus. In other words, he repents. Jesus forgives him, but when he forgives him, what he asks him, do you love me? In other words, what's he saying? Are you ready to obey me? Our love relationship is going to be obedience. And he said, yes, I am. And so off they go. So yeah, that was a sin, but it's a really beautiful picture of that idea of restoration. In 1 John, when he says, if you say you know Jesus and you don't keep his commands, you're a liar. He also goes on to say, listen, we want to avoid sinning, but if we do sin, the blood of Christ covers us. If we repent, Jesus Christ forgives and reinstates us, if you will. And we don't break that loving relationship. We go back into a relationship of obedience. Great question. But I want you to see that thread. It's interesting that he asks him, do you love me? Not, will you obey me in the future? Because that's the same thing. It's relational with Jesus. Good question. Um, when we were talking about exclusivity, Jesus being the way, mm -hmm. how does God deal with those who live in places where they're never exposed to the name of Jesus? They're never given a chance or a choice to believe in him? Yeah, let's talk about that briefly. Two thoughts. First preface, though. That's a hypothetical. Don't let that be a red herring in your life. I cannot tell you how many people have come to me in time and say, well, I personally can't believe in God because I need to know how he's going to deal with this guy who lives in Central Australia and has never heard the word. That is a cop-out. When Jesus was asked that question, he said, you strive to enter by the narrow gate. In other words, you and I do know about Jesus. So I have to preface it with that. Our, your and my obligation to God is not in any way conditioned on how he's going to deal with this problem. Fair enough? No cop-outs here. Okay, second thing. How is that going to be dealt with? Very interesting uh, suggestions in the Bible. So I'm going to give you an opinion here because Christians disagree a little bit because the Scripture doesn't tell you. It tells you God is just. He will do the right thing. He won't do what you and I think is the right thing, thank goodness, because none of us are actually just. 
There is no true human justice. I mean, our country is as just as any in the world. I'm proud of our country, but we all know we are susceptible to being unjust, but God is not. So first, the Bible tells us he will do what is just. Why? Because he knows the heart of people. You get a suggestion that God may judge people by what they know. In uh, Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, Paul makes the case, everyone stands in need of reconciliation because everyone has sinned. And he goes through three cases. And the first case he goes through is people that don't know about Jesus. And he said, okay, but they do know there's a God. You can tell that from what's believed. And what he basically seems to be saying, in my view, is they don't even measure up to what they know. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm telling you that everybody stands in need. How will God then reconcile that is, a, is an interesting question, but everybody has a need. No one is innocent. And so Paul talks about everyone needs Jesus Christ. So do they have a chance? What is that really asking? Well, will God be fair by my standards? Everybody should have a chance. Well, first of all, that presupposes that we actually know whether they have a chance and whether we know how he will judge them. But under no circumstances does the Bible talk about there being any other way than Jesus. So if people don't know about Jesus, God will be just. He'll judge them by the standard he chooses to judge them. But they're never going to be reconciled except what Jesus did on the cross. So think about that a little bit. That's one that the Bible's not explicit about. It just tells us God, God has figured this out. Not can figure it out. God has figured this out. But do not let those hypotheticals get in the way of our response because we do know. And by the way, we have a task. And our task is go tell everybody else in the world. So if there's anybody in this world that doesn't know it, instead of saying, God, you have a problem, God might go, actually, you have a problem. Because I told you to go tell everybody, didn't I? So hopefully we'll be a little more anxious to go tell everybody. Well, let's go into the two so what's, because I want to I leave you with the idea of, okay, what does this mean then? You go from fear and anxiety to peace. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You've got the idea of the object of our faith, and you have the idea of love and obedience. So the first one, let's just stay with love and obedience. I like this quote by D.A. Carson. Mere duty will not generate obedience to Christ. Only love for him can do that. This is where I feel like we're most tempted. So this is kind of a takeaway. Sometimes we think we will obey through our own effort out of duty. And duty is important. Sometimes we do what is right because it's right. It is our duty to love people who are unlovable, and so we do. Not because we feel like it, not because they deserve it. It's what our God told us to do, and so we go do it. But you, we cannot, duty is not sufficient to generate an obedient life. Love is what is sufficient to generate an obedient life. Because duty comes from us. Love, you get energized by the power of the object of your affection. Does that make sense? Duty says, I will live up to God's standard. Not going to happen. Love says, the object of my affection is what guides my life. That's my life is oriented toward Jesus. So the implication of this is simple. We need to be in a loving relationship with Jesus Christ to be able to obey him. It's not enough to try harder. That's why you can just quit trying to act better. 
That's really not a biblical way to make God happy. Try to fall in love with Jesus Christ. That's the key to obedience. That is what Jesus said, and this quote really captures it. So let me tell you the how of that. Give you a specific example. First of all, if you're going to write a biography of Winston Churchill, you would read everything Winston Churchill wrote because you need to get to know Winston Churchill. He's not here for you to go talk to him, and so you are going to get to know him. You're going to read everything he wrote. Listen to every speech he made. You're going to read everything that he wrote. Or let me give you a more uh, current one. Neil Gorsuch doing uh, hearings today for... uh, to be uh, on the Supreme Court. So you can actually talk to Neil Gorsuch, but you know what? People don't rely on that. What do they do? They go research every opinion he has written. They go read everything he's done. Why? Because if you want to know Judge Gorsuch, you can talk to him for a few minutes, but you can learn everything you need to know about his judicial philosophy by reading everything that he has written. That's how we go about really getting to know someone. That's what this book is for. That's why you have a New Testament. It is, it's going to tell you everything you need to know about Jesus Christ, about following Jesus Christ, to be in a relationship with him. Does that make sense? I don't want to stand up here and say, just have a warm feeling in your heart about Jesus. That may sound good. It just doesn't work. That's why you have a New Testament. You can read everything you need to know to fall in love with Jesus Christ. And it's that love that enables us to be obedient. So when we say you need to be in the Word, real Christian way of saying, read your New Testament. Why? Because it makes God happy? No. There's nothing in the Bible that says you need to read your Bible for five minutes a day. What's in there is said, the only way you can be obedient to God is to love Him. And the only way to love Him is to know Him. And the only way to know Him is to read what He wrote. Does that make sense? That's why we read the Bible. You cannot fall in love with someone you do not know. You can fall in love with a figment of your imagination, and a lot of people who, quote, follow Christ, follow a Christ of their own making. Matthew chapter 7, read it. That doesn't work well. We need to fall in love. The object of our faith is what takes away our fear and our anxiety. We need to get to know him. Read your Bible, but don't read it as a chore. Don't read it as a, I'm going to make God happy. Read it because I need to know this Jesus whom my affections are set on. Make sense? So get to know him, to obey him. Fear and anxiety about the future are best met by focusing on the object of our faith. This is a little counterintuitive. Jesus is saying something here that's not the way we typically handle it. When you and I have fear and anxiety, what do we tend to focus on? The problem, I'll give you a great example of this. Laura and I were driving back from Dallas last week. We went down there because I was telling somebody the other day, there were apparently some shoes that needed to be tried on. And we needed to go there to do it. And so, and we had a great time, and we tried on a couple hundred. We had tried a lot of shoes on. Anyway, so we went down to do some shopping. We came back, it was dark. And if you've come back from Dallas recently, you realize there isn't an inch of that road that isn't under construction. Well, apparently at night, later when we were coming back, is a big time for semis. So I'm white-knuckling this. We're going 75. We're going pretty fast. And 
on the one side, I've got these concrete barriers, and they're right up by the line. You know what I'm talking about? It's really narrow. Other side, semi. So I come, you know, moving along, and I'm in between this semi right here and this barrier. This is called anxiety, all right? So I'm sitting here, and I realize we could die right now. And so I'm looking, and so at this, when you get into the anxious situation, what am I focused on? The wall, the semi, the wall, the semi. You know what that does? More anxiety. Now Laura's starting to get a little anxious, you know? This may not be the best place to be. I know that, you know? And so we're sitting here. So what do you do in that situation? Well, and that, then you start focusing on the stuff there, and you realize, man, I'm kind of having a hard time staying in the middle of the lane. I'm going here, here, here. What do you do? Well, you all know that. You look down the road, don't you? You say, I got to quit focusing on the semi. I got to quit thinking about this wall. I know how to drive this car. I just need to look down this lane. And sure enough, you look down the lane, all of a sudden, it just straightens out. Oh, and if you really stomp the gas pedal and get out past that semi, <laughs> that helps too, okay? I'm just saying. But you get the idea of you have to look down the road to be able to steer straight. That's what Jesus is saying. The instinct is, look at the things that are causing me anxiety. Jesus says, no, put your gaze on me, the object of our faith. That's really actionable. I really want you to think about this the next time you're fearful. Instead of thinking, oh, is this going to happen? Oh, will that happen? Oh, what am I going to do if this happens? Oh, I'm worried that that's going to happen. Our fear and our anxiety just get worse when we look at the fear and anxiety. That's why Jesus says the way to deal with that is trust in God, trust also in me because I am the way. Lift our gaze and focus on Jesus. Look down the road. That's the antidote to fear and anxiety, and it's completely counterintuitive. It's not our natural instinct. So lift your eyes and put your faith in Christ. Look down the road. Look at Jesus Christ. So you get the idea of love and obedience. You cannot obey a God you do not know. You have everything we need to, to know. Jesus has told us everything that we need to know how much he loves us and for us to love him. And we have the author and perfecter of our faith, as Hebrews says, so set your gaze on him. So when you hit those anxious moments, you need to train ourselves to do this. When you hit those anxious moments, be aware, you know what, I'm fearful, I'm anxious, I'm worried. What will I choose to do? I'm going to choose to set my gaze on the Jesus that I know, and this is not going to occupy my attention. And Jesus says, that's how you go from being troubled to having peace, is setting our eyes on him. that a deal? That's what I want you to do this week. And if you say, Terry, I don't have any stress or anxiety this week. Just come forward because we want to beat you up. We're just not, we're not happy with that. But the point is, when you get there, I want you to remember, Jesus takes disciples who are fearful and anxious, and in the course of 27 verses, basically gives them the antidote of that. Set your eyes on Christ. Think about obeying this one whom you love, whom your affections are set on, and all the other things are going to fade into the side. Well, next time, he goes on, and he says... I will ask the Father, he'll give you this counselor to be with you. Now, that's interesting because he says, basically, I'm going to go. You and I have this relationship. I know that you will obey. I know that you will look to me, but you won't have to do it alone. 
And so I'd really like to investigate whatever you've known about the Holy Spirit. Let's set that aside for a minute because in John chapter 15, Jesus is going to talk about the Holy Spirit, what he does, and what his role is in our lives. And that's what we'll do next week when you're not so stressed. All right? I'll see you then. <laughs>